Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf and I am here in our studios in beautiful Alexandria, Virginia, and I am joined today as... Uh, every Thursday by Ryan Goodman, who is up in New York. How are you doing, Ryan? Doing well, David. And uh, also joined by Greg Sargent, who is a columnist for the Washington Post. Hi, Greg. You're down here, I assume. Yes, I am. Hi. Hi. Uh, maybe at some point Rosa Brooks will join us in this episode. She is in Wyoming, and I think her Wi-Fi antenna is attached to the back of a coyote or something, and a uh, little little hard to get a, get a hold of her. Um, guys, obviously, on the minds of a lot of people uh, are the two Mueller hearings that took place on uh, Wednesday of this week uh, with the House Judiciary Committee and the Intelligence Committee. Uh, and let me start with you, Greg, because you boiled it down in a column uh, to a couple of core things that you thought were important coming out of that. But I do want you both to keep in mind that I'm extremely emotionally fragile after having listened to that and then followed the reaction to it, um, which I found so disturbingly twisted. Um, but, but, yeah. you, I'm, but I'm putting my emotional health in your hands there, Greg. So <laughs> go ahead. Well, absolutely. Uh, I found the, uh, I think this is really one of the most dismal performances by the press corps, if you can generalize about the press corps that we've seen in, in some time. Um, it was just stunning how lacking in, in a moral center the coverage was. It was really just all about Mueller's age and his, uh, you know, his obvious verbal struggles. I think we, we all saw that he was more frail than we expected and and may potentially have been suffering from something physically. But I was absolutely just baffled by the amount of attention that was paid to this um, under the guise of, of covering the optics of the hearing. One thing that disturbed me really a great deal was that if we're going to talk about optics, why weren't we talking about the optics of the fact that you know, Republicans were up there ranting and raging at Mueller for failing to uh, or refusing to clear Trump of criminality. I mean, those are absolutely horrifyingly awful optics, politically speaking, right? Because any low information voter or moderately informed voter is going to see that and, and come away with a, a very basic impression. Republicans are furious at Mueller for not clearing Trump. Those are terrible optics, and, and unlike the optics of Mueller's speech patterns, they go to the core of, of the substantive issue on the table. Yet you saw almost no discussion from our elite journalists of those optics. 
Yeah, no, that's definitely the case. Has has Rosa joined us? Do I hear Rosa in the distance? I am uh, here. Well, hi, Rosa. That's a pretty good connection from Wyoming. Hi, David. Uh, Rosa, we have with us uh, Ryan, and we also have Greg Sargent of the Washington Post. Hi, Ryan. Hi, Greg. Um, hi. And we're talking about the Mueller hearings, and I'm going to go to Ryan, and then I'll go to you after that, Rosa. Um, but, you know, I, Ryan, maybe you want to just pick up on what Greg was uh, saying and offer your perspectives. Um, so I'm in agreement with a lot of what Greg was saying in terms of at least the emphasis on the, you know, the optics with respect to Mueller's performance. Um, so I think that that should not overshadow the uh, substance of what 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 happened during the hearings. Um, I do, th and and just in terms of the substance, I think you know one of the most important pieces of the hearing that I both hearings that I thought was significant is that the Republicans did not contest a single fact in the report. So they can talk about all sorts of conspiracy theories about the motives of those who maybe originated the investigation and, and the like, but what's the point of all of that if they can't actually dispute any of the facts? Like, are they saying that Don McGahn lied the way that the president said Don McGahn lied and that's not true? They didn't, they didn't seem to be willing to engage in any of that. So it's, at the end of the day, if you just think of it in terms of substance, goodness gracious, we just got the report entered into the into Congress for two important hearings and the substance of the report um, left, uh, you know, both those hearings um, untarnished. Um, so I think that's, and that to, that to me is uh, most important, given especially the gravity of what's in the report. Um, that said, I do want to maybe voice a bit of a difference here, well, not a bit, it's a difference in that I did think that there's some fair game to fairness to the um, concerns raised by Mueller's performance. Um, just to think of it in the converse, I think if Mueller had performed um, with great agility and, and, and instilled confidence in his handling of the hearings with respect to his kind of command of the report, uh, there'd be a lot of celebration of that um, and laudatory comments of it and and that that would have reflected well on the quality of the report. So I, I think that to me it was disturbing um, and unsettling to see um, those weaknesses on Mueller's part. And I think some of those weaknesses aren't just in performance, but it's actually worries me a bit about uh, kind of his command of the of of this report in a certain sense. Rosa, did you get to watch any of it out there in Wyoming? I didn't. So I had the, the slightly strange experience of experiencing it only through the subsequent headlines and commentary and tweets. Um, and it, it is it is strange to me how much of the coverage is focused on you know, did Mueller seem confused or sharp-witted? Was he interesting? Uh, as opposed to the substance, I guess I shouldn't be surprised by that. Um, but, I, you know, coming at it from a distance, it seems to me, and, and this is certainly, I think, what we predicted uh, a few weeks ago, nothing, is, nothing has changed. Mueller reiterated what the report said. 
Um, if you paid attention to the report, there weren't any surprises. Um, he didn't pull any more punches than the report already pulls. Um, you know, so I, I don't know that this, I don't know that this changes anybody's mind about much of anything. And, and it you know, from afar, just watching these kind of warring tweets of, well, this proves that impeachment must happen immediately versus, well, this proves that impeachment is pointless. It just seemed like a whole lot of uh, spin based on really no new information. Well, I mean, I don't know if there was no new information, um, Greg. You know, there, there, the Mueller was restrained as we expected him to be restrained. He demurred when the conversation went outside of the report as we expected it would. Um, but there was no beating around the bush with Mueller yesterday. I mean, he was saying, uh, you know, there were 150 contacts by the Russians. The Russians undertook a sweeping effort to influence U.S. elections. They are continuing to do that. Um, uh, the Trump administration embraced it. The Trump administration defended it. The Trump uh, witnesses we wanted to spoke speak to lied or avoided speaking to us. The president obstructed justice with regard to these things, or certainly the president undertook a number of actions that could be construed as the obstruction of justice and are w- warrant further consideration in that regard. And the Trump team did not show good judgment by not reporting this to the FBI as it was happening. You know, and I, you know, I, I think in an alternative universe, you can listen to all of that and say, oh, the United States was attacked by one of its principal enemies, if not its principal enemy. The outcome of the election was uh, possibly affected by it. The president who benefited from that and had business interests um, that might further have been associated with that benefit uh, defended that um, uh, government and 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 arguably rewarded them and then obstructed justice in the midst of it. Holy shit. That's a big national security story. That's a big defense of democracy story. That's not, you know, did Mueller present his himself compellingly story? And, 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 right. and, and, and yet, yet there seems to, we seem to be at a juncture where it is possible that you know, you listen to Nancy Pelosi, you listen to Adam Schiff following the meeting, you listen to um, uh, a number of people in the media. The impeachment ship may have sailed. There may be no accountability for the president of the United States for participating in this. Well, well, well hold on, though. I mean, just just to jump in really quickly on that, David, I think that there are many forms of accountability. Um, I think that, number one, uh, being voted out of office uh, would be a significant form of accountability. Number two, uh, further investigations and prosecutions could occur when he's out of office, whether it's in two years or in four. Uh, and number three, you know, there there are longer term forms of accountability. Uh, you know, history is not going to judge this guy very well. I, I'm not saying that, you know, I'm not saying that is uh, better than a an immediate reckoning, um, but I but I do think that we get too hung up on judicial and quasi judicial forms of accountability, and we forget that others can be just as important. Okay, Greg, what do you think? 
Well, can I, I wanted to return to something you, you brought up before about the national security dimension of the story. You know, that's, that's actually one area in which Mueller's performance actually was compelling, right? Because there was an exchange with Schiff that, that, that really I've watched it a number of times now, and, 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 and even the most optics-obsessed uh, TV critic type would have to concede that it was excellent TV, right? I mean, it was, you know, it was crisp, and it went back and forth, and, and it painted a picture of an extraordinary betrayal of our country by, by the president. Um, and, and for that not to get uh, the optics treatment, while a few stutters did, just seems so baffling to me. The other thing is, you know, the, the question of whether Mueller made news in a way is almost too narrow a question, right? Because um, he, he actually did make news without saying something quote-unquote new in a way, right? Because he repudiated publicly and directly two of Trump's biggest lies about his findings. I'm unaware that Mueller at any point before this has been asked directly to respond to Trump's claims of, quote, no collusion and, uh, and no obstruction and total exoneration. I don't believe at his presser uh, or, or his remarks publicly a, a few weeks ago, he addressed that. Yet here he directly and publicly and forcefully repudiated those things. The Associated Press and Reuters went out with stories on it instantly with very sh sharply worded headlines. And so, so the idea that there was nothing new here is, is just, it's not even true. It's empirically false. Yeah, I, th I think that's true. And there were a number of little, you know, footnotes along the way, uh, you know, his, right. his admonition um, or criticism of Trump with regard to his uh, embrace of WikiLeaks, for example, was another place where that, that took place. Um, right. That's true. That was new. Ryan, when you sort of look at this going forward, um, do you see this as the end of a chapter? Do you see this, you know, a lot of the Dems on the Hill were like, well, this is chapter one, then we're going to get to our own hearings. But, you know, you follow legal things. One of the things that struck me yesterday and may have colored my mood a bit was that the Department of Justice sent a letter to Nancy Pelosi saying that they've reviewed the issues pertaining to the contempt of Congress findings on, you know, with regard to Bill Barr and Secretary of Commerce Ross, and they've decided not to pursue them. And, and you know, and essentially the last paragraph was, so good luck, you know. And, and, and I was reading this in the context of this whole thing, and I was just like, I see the strategy here. It's impede, slow walk, deny, push things to the courts. And I think, frankly, that's what some of the Dems want. And that's why I'm a little bleak right now, because I think the most likely outcome is all this stuff gets pushed to the other side of the election effectively. Right. I mean, I do think that you putting your finger on something I agree with, that there's this convergence of interest um, between the White House Justice Department on one side and Nancy Pelosi and part of her leadership circle on the other in terms of using litigation to kick this down the road. Um, and then I believe, you know, Nancy Pelosi's made the political calculation against impeachment so that 
uh, several months from now when Congress wins at the appellate level their litigation to get Don McGahn, for example, to testify, by then the public's interest in these sets of concerns and the abuse of power in the White House and volume two of the Mueller report will have dissipated. And it'll be more of a focus on the 2020 election and the percentage of people who support impeachment will have gone down. And then at that point, she'll be on such stronger ground to say, you know, there's no the country's not ready for impeachment now because look at all look at all those factors. And and the idea of saying that we're promising that now we're going to get more information through the litigation to which we would then open the. Um, impeachment inquiry doesn't work, right? Because <laughs> as, as others have said as well, it, at some level, it's no open an impeachment inquiry so you can strengthen your hand to get the information. Um, yeah. And, and um, I mean, there are, there are arguments short of that. I, I know there's very strong legal arguments short of that, but nobody can deny that an actual inquiry being opened would um, accelerate the courts and be more likely to yield that information. It's not like you would get the information before you would open the inquiry, why not open the inquiry? So I think that's right um, to point at that. And I do think that it's um, a generalized stonewalling on the part of the administration to just try to fight this out in the courts, which, um, you know, optimistically it takes months. It might, as you had said, uh, it might take over a year uh, by which we're past the election. Um, the, you know, the litigation over Harriet Myers, George W. Bush's um, White House counsel to testify before the House Judiciary Committee um, took that long as well. It was after uh, the issue had long passed that they finally, you know, they won at the district court level. Greg, you you made a grunt there. I was wondering why you grunted. Well, you know, there's something I've been thinking about, and, and I've written in favor of an impeachment inquiry, as, as I hope you've seen. But I, I, do, I do wonder about how... Uh, effective all of us are being in trying to make it happen. And and can I throw out something for you guys to to all chew on? Because there there are 43 House seats that that Democrats flipped from the Republicans. And I was looking at some of the partisan lean in some of these districts, and and I had uh, Dave Wasserman and Cook Political Report crunch some numbers for me. And he looked at it and he found that if you take all those 43 districts, there there are two points more Republican than the country as a whole on average. And some of them are three points more, some are four, some are five, some are six, some are seven points more Republican. Now, on Twitter, we all talk about, you know, the the need for impeachment, the, uh, the need to rise to the, his, the historic challenge of the moment, the need to take on Trump's uh, lawlessness and so forth. But I, I wonder whether we're, we're failing in the sense of not making a case to moderates in those districts uh, that they can really um, work with. I mean, they hear those things and they say, well, okay, but this is going to cost me my reelection. And, and I don't feel like we're making a good argument to those people. And, and I don't, I, a lot of left Twitter seems at this point to be kind of in a bit of a, an outrage feedback loop where we're all just agreeing that they're all abdicating, but we're not talking to them. And, and I don't know what that's accomplishing. And, and I wonder if we can be doing better. These are really Republican leaning districts and that's where the majority sits. And I, I, look, I think that you could make a case to them that 
that they could probably win re-election and maybe even strengthen the party's chances in 2020 with an impeachment inquiry. But we aren't making that case to them. And I think that's a problem. Well, I think a lot of this turns on the ability to make that case. Um, Rosa, when you watch this aftermath of all of this and listen to these discussions, do you have the sense that we're drifting away from resolving this by, you know, constitutional or quasi-judicial or judicial means prior to the election and that this is going to have to happen afterwards? Yeah, I do. Um, I think, I mean, if I were if I were placing bets, I would say I would put my money on there's not going to be impeachment proceedings and there there will continue to be the kind of um, sort of inconclusive skirmishing with congressional subpoenas, with investigations, with sort of lower level players getting themselves indicted or in trouble but that there's not going to be some, you know, dramatic moment where where uh, uh, Trump is, you know, hauled onto the carpet in front of Congress and the American people uh, before the election. Um, I also, I mean, I share Greg's concern. There was there was a there was an article uh, in the Atlantic right now by Ben Judah on the sort of broader generational rift between the uh, what he calls the millennial left, the sort of younger younger left progressives um, who are backing the the so-called squad and and versus the sort of Nancy Pelosi wait your turn, shut up and grow up camp in the Democratic Party. Um, and and I think there we are seeing an, an emerging and growing rift that is, primarily it is it is both generational and it's and it's geographic it's it's very much a young people from urban settings educated young people in urban settings and they're drifting in a different direction than the people who still hold a lock on sort of the, most of the levers of power in in congress um and I don't know how that's going to end, right? I mean, I mean, it's 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 too early to know. It's not, in some ways, it makes me think of of an era that I was, you know, not alive during, um, uh, which is the you know the 1960s and the the sort of huge generational shift that opened up. And one of the things, you know, looking back on on that period, that's interesting is that the the viciousness the viciousness with which the sort of established liberal elite condemned the new left. Uh, probably surpassed the hostility of the right towards the new left in many ways. You know that that it was a kind of internecine battle. You know, and 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 who won? Uh, I'm you know not, nobody really won. Nobody really lost. Um, but it took decades for that to kind of play out in terms of in terms of how it shaped the Democratic Party and how it shaped American culture. So I I I, I do worry. I worry very much that the uh, the rhetoric and the assumptions of sort of left-wing Twitter is out of touch with and and profoundly alienating to moderates in the Democratic Party and, and outside of the Democratic Party. I don't have the slightest idea what to do about that because I also recognize that the, the anguish and the anger experienced by a lot of these younger progressives, uh, you know, it, it's got... It's got pretty profound roots. Um, it's not going to go away. 
Um, so I, I have no idea what's going to happen. In other words, I was sorry. That was not a terribly satisfying bit of commentary, but, oh, but, no. but yes, I worry. On, on the contrary. Um, what I took from that is I'm a member of the millennial left. And you that's, are. I've always thought of you that, as, a, as, a, that, as a youth. That is highly satisfying <laughs> to, <laughs> to, 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 to me. But, you know, it does raise a question. Yeah, 60s comparison is fa- fascinating for sure. Yeah, well, I I think it is it 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 is fascinating, but I I also think, you know, it raises a question, um, you know, which is when did it become moderate to allow an enemy to attack the country without responding to it? When did Maybe it be- moderate is the wrong term? Well, but but that um, is the position. It, let's just call it the traditional elites, the the existing power structure within the Democratic Party. Right. Well, but it's actually the traditional elites in both parties seem to believe that a perfectly okay outcome is do nothing or do very little. To Can to, I respond to that, David? Yes, please. Well, so so I agree with you on the substance, but but I just my my feeling is that the rise to the moment and and stand up to protect our democracy argument isn't reaching the moderates, right? And so we can keep repeating it, right? And it is I think it's a powerful argument, but they don't, right? That's the that's the issue, and and I can kind of see their perspective in a way, you know. Again, I I'm I'm for an impeachment inquiry for all for many of the reasons that that you are. Um, but I can also – it doesn't seem to me that the arguments against it are wildly crazy at the same time, right? I don't think the preordained fact of Senate acquittal should dictate what the House does. But at the same time, it's also not crazy to say, well, if this ends in acquittal, is it worth it if it's also politically bad for me? This is a moderate thinking about it, right? And so – I think we've got to come up with an argument that reaches these moderates in a way that we haven't so far. And and I just don't think, given the fact that real accountability probably won't happen at the end of an impeachment process, or almost certainly won't happen, given that fact, I'm not sure that rise to this moment, this historic moment, and protect our democracy from lawlessness is enough to get the moderates there. And we and what can we say that's better? I, I'm really grappling with this, and I, I don't have an answer. Well, um, it's it's not just the moderates, of course. I think one other thing that is worth commenting on, and maybe I'll turn to you, Ryan, and ask you for your comment on it, is that even in the wake of Mueller's testimony and the Mueller report, the Senate voted down two measures to protect the country from further election interference and one on cyber interference immediately in its wake. Um, And so we have this situation where, you know, Pearl Harbor has taken place and our response is to disband the military. We, you know, we're not, we're not, we're not even rising up in the most basic level, not just about past crimes, but to prevent future ones. Right. I mean, I thought that was one of the low points of yesterday that there was the juxtaposition of the Senate on the very same day um, voting down those two um, 
election uh, security measures, one of which was, you know, to have campaigns report when they're approached by foreign governments offering assistance on the same day that um, former director Mueller and as a uh, former special counsel is, if he's animated about anything, it's about that. Um, and in fact, is even saying in his back and forth with Schiff that were a campaign to invite that kind of assistance, um, it would be um, a grounds for opening an investigation, um, which I thought was a strong signal um, by him and a strong signal by him in some sense implicitly about the investigation of the investigators, the idea being that that's of course something that we would think of as a national security threat. And he's warning about it in those stark terms at the same time Mitch McConnell is deep sixing what should be the most reasonable nonpartisan uh, kinds of uh, legislation. So, so I think that that's um, a very serious problem. Um, and was, you know, why yesterday I thought was like a bad day for democracy and a bad day for national security and a bad day for accountability. Um, the only other, you know, there's some glimmers, but I, I, it's maybe even not even worth spending time on some of the glimmers of some hope in that space, because I think um, what happened yesterday with those um, two legislative measures is is the reality of it. But uh, just before we started the podcast um, in the last hour, the Senate um, uh, Intelligence Committee released uh, volume one of their report on the 2016 election interference. And it is a kind of a strong report coming out of the Republican-controlled Senate um, committee uh, demonstrating the Russian attack on um, voting infrastructure. So, um, you know, there's some, that's a, a bit of a glimmer um, where I have very low expectations for Senator Burr's uh, chairmanship of that committee, but something there. But otherwise, I, I agree. I, I think that there's, um, it's uh, um, really uh, intolerable uh, the degree to which the alarm bells that uh, Mueller's trying to sound and others as well is not being uh, heard in, in the Senate side and not being heard in the White House. There's obviously well, not a priority. Well, to this this may question. be grasping at straws, but let me follow up that point and, and Greg's point with a question for Rosa and then back to all of you. And that is, might it not make sense if one were trying to mobilize some reaction and if one felt the national security issue were the big issue to make a big push in terms of hearings on that issue, given that um, a number of Republicans have indicated some concern there from Congressman Hurd yesterday to um, uh, Senator Burr, it, it, you know, even in with all of his, you know, warts and all uh, has 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 done so and that there is a broad cross-section of support for doing more to protect ourselves in the military and in the intelligence community, and that one could conceivably call a series of hearings to drill down on this and to call out the inaction of the government in the face of this as a way of emphasizing continuity with 2016 without getting into the Trump-centric component of it, but shining a very unfavorable light on McConnell's 
obstructionism, on the Trump administration's um, uh, views on this, uh, and and at least finding an area where there may be more of uh, a bipartisan uh, agreement to at least achieve something in the near term. I mean, Rosa, is that a path? Uh, maybe, but it depends what we're trying to achieve, right? I, I mean, is there a possible bipartisan path to legislation that helps somewhat more effectively protect the integrity of electoral systems uh, that helps make it more difficult for there to be covert forms of foreign influence. Yeah, I do think there, there's a path to that, and, and that's important for its own sake to pursue. But I think, I think maybe you're suggesting that that's also a path to sort of subtly raising additional alarm bells about both Trump himself and the behavior of the GOP. Um, that I suspect not so much. I mean, I think, I think, you know, one of the difficulties, and this is not just a difficulty on, on this issue, this is a, a problem across the board, you know, in this, in this messy era in which not everybody's, you know, when people aren't listening to Walter Cronkite every night and people are already in their bubbles and most people don't care that much to start with, you know, it's a, it's a pretty small percentage of the American public right or left that is actually paying close attention uh, I think that the subtlety there is 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 not, it's going to be completely lost on anybody who is in a position to change their mind. You know, I, I don't I don't think that's a route towards you know moving people away from voting Republican, for instance. I doubt it would make any particular difference. I think I think partly you know the the the, the problems. It's easy to understand. I mean, you gave the example of Pearl Harbor, right? Well, Pearl Harbor is really easy to understand. You know, lots of destroyed ships and airplanes and dead people. Stuff gets blown up. And, and everybody gets that in a completely visceral way. That was an attack on the United States of America. We have to do something about it. Um, but I think that for many Americans, the, you, you know, to, to, to us on this podcast, we think, this was an outrageously blatant attempt to sway the election, and it was effective. Um, and it was, you know, was was illegal in various ways, should have been illegal in various other ways. But I think to an awful lot of Americans, it's just kind of confusing. It's, well, you know, gee, um, so Russians put ads on Facebook? Like, well, what's the big deal? Well, okay, yeah, I agree they shouldn't actually, you know, hack into the machines, but well, what's the big deal? They leaked in for, you know, that, that, that it, it, it's not concrete enough for them to view it as an urgent, alarming thing. And somewhat depressingly, I think, you know, if, if I were a sort of Machiavellian uh, political consultant, you know, if I were if, if I were the Karl Rove of, of Democrats, um, I would be saying something like, hey, there is a way, guys, that we can use this, that we can turn the exact same sentiment that makes Trump supporters shout, send them back, send them back against Trump and the GOP by positioning them as, you know, anti-military, anti-law enforcement, uh, uh, tools of, you know, hostile, hostile, scary foreign, different people who don't look anything like us and are probably communists or terrorists, that, that I think that would be doable. 
But I also think that that would be horrible, right? You know, because it would be tapping into exactly the same wellspring of really xenophobic fear that Trump is already tapping into. And it would also, you know, ultimately would end up being a pretty, a pretty hollow victory. What do you think, Greg? I have to agree with a lot of that. I, I agree that uh, you probably could find some uh, bipartisan support for, for certain types of things like aid to states and things without strings attached is what I suspect it would have to be, um, or without requirements that states do things. I also agree that you'd probably not be able to get much bipartisan agreement uh, or at least bipartisan cooperation um, on an investigation that would look at uh, the role of the Trump administration in election security. But I do think that uh, as a partisan investigation run by Democrats in the House, you could conceivably look at some interesting things. It would have to be partisan, unfortunately. But what you could look at is uh, some of the stuff that the reporting has documented at great length already, which is that Trump's refusal to acknowledge the Russian attack on our election uh, has actually hamstrung efforts by the administration to prepare us for the next attack. I believe the Times recently reported that former uh, Homeland Security um, Chief uh, Kirsten Nielsen wanted to go to Trump about uh, election security concerns, and Mick Mulvaney told her to forget about it because he doesn't want to hear anything about Russian interference. Um, the Post had a very deep dive, at least around a year ago, into all the ways in which Trump's refusal to acknowledge the attack on our political system has hamstrung officials up and down the government in terms of preparing for the next round. And some of those leaks are self-serving for sure, but, but it seems to me that there's a great deal of truth to, to all this. And we know that, that uh, not only has Trump openly invited another attack, he's actively hamstrung his own government uh, from preparing us for another. And you would think that well-run investigations could get into some of that stuff, right? Um, of course, they would stonewall them all, but at least you could potentially draw some more press coverage to, to what they've done and maybe shed a little more light on, on the real meaning of, of that, especially now that the Mueller, um, the Mueller appearance before Congress has activated everyone's attention around at least his declaration that, that, that the Russians are going to do this all again, you would think that some well, um, well-organized congressional activity could further dig into the administration's own culpability in failing to protect us. Well, Ryan, you know, I, I, I'm happy to, to, to take a moment to look at the you know, other glimmers of hope that you may have seen in yesterday. But, you know, in the continuing in this vein, I think we have to recognize that just as it seems likely that McConnell has precluded impeachment, he, uh, uh, processes from taking place because it's very clear that he would not uh, uh, even undertake to to uh, let them before the Senate, much less convict. Uh, it's also clear that these legal strategies of uh, rejecting subpoenas and not appearing and claiming privileges that don't exist um, are not really intended to to win as much as to delay, but they can delay for a long time. And if we're playing the realistic game that you know Nancy Pelosi says she's playing, then we have to sort of acknowledge that stuff and say what can be done. 
you know, and and that's why I'm saying, you know, is there is this a bipartisan avenue? Do you see other things that can be effective in either emphasizing the wrongdoing of the Trump administration, as hearings were supposed to do, but won't if you can't get witnesses, or um, uh, actually addressing the national security uh, issues that are underlying all of this? Yeah, I think um, there are two um, pieces I would try. Uh, so the first is, I think, um, having hearings and having um, military experts, for example, talk about um, Russian gray zone information warfare to, in part, um, also explain to the American public that we are talking about something that is the, in our era, uh, closer to Pearl Harbor in the sense that we were attacked in 2016 by, you know, a Russian military unit. I don't even think many people understand that, um, that this really is about a kind of a form of warfare. Um, so I think there are ways to frame it around that. Um, and then the second, and to make people understand that it's in fact the U.S., like DOD uh, takes um, this as one of its top priorities. The second, I think, would maybe be an in important area to focus on um, is the Russian interference in the GOP primary in 2016. I just think that's been lost uh, so much in the conversation. I was hoping that would be part of the factual recitation in the Mueller report, but that might be another way to make people understand that this is not a partisan motivation on the part of people who are concerned about the national security issues and uh, there are many oxes that can get gored and do, you know, Republicans and conservatives want their party to be defined by Russian interference um, and uh, Russian use of social media uh, to shape their party in a more alt-right direction, for example, uh, which is to Putin's liking. Um, so I think that might be a second way. Uh, then just one other um, item just to mention, it ties up, ties together with or dovetails with an earlier question that you had asked David, which is, you know, is this, was the Mueller hearing just chapter one in the litigation and the lawsuits, things like that? I do think, you know, there's other chapter two that's coming is the Roger Stone trial, which will focus public attention on the WikiLeaks dimension of all of this, um, which I think has also not received uh, sufficient attention. So it's not just whether or not there was like coordination, collusion, uh, conspiracy, or whatever with Russian, Russia per se, but actually WikiLeaks per se. But I also make, you know, reference to that here because I'm not sure we can escape the partisan divide. I'm not sure we can escape the connection back to the Trump campaign because the Roger Stone trial will put it right back into that space, um, that it will be linked back to, you know, what did the Trump campaign in particular do? Well, I, you know, we uh, we are going to have to uh, watch and learn as this progresses. I wish we had more time for this conversation, but I'm really glad that uh, Rosa from Wyoming and Ryan and Greg here could join in this discussion. I hope you will all be back uh, to continue the discussion. Uh, I have to say that I came out of yesterday Um rather despairing, but who knows? Next week we have Democratic 
debates, and a number of the Democratic candidates are more um, uh, actively leaning towards taking uh, strong steps to hold the president accountable than than some of their colleagues in the legislature. And so perhaps that'll reinvigorate the discussion. We shall see. And uh, as every week, there will be episodes of Deep State Radio at which we discuss it. Please join us in those episodes. Please go to thedsrnetwork.com. If you want to listen to them, listen to back episodes, go to the archive uh, or uh uh, join up, become a member, or answer our audience poll, which will reveal the results of next week. But we've really been taking a deep dive with the audience to see where we should go and how we should grow. And we're incredibly res- grateful for the response so far. It's been fantastic. Really, really encouraging. You're the best audience in the world, and we are very, very fortunate to have you. And we look forward to having you back as we continue to grow and grapple with these issues. Thanks again. Rosa, Ryan, Greg, and all of you out there in the audience. Bye-bye. Okay, folks. Thank you very much. I got to run. I will send you the... Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.